Sometimes people say, God helps those who help themselves. Or, God can move mountains, but he expects us to bring the shovel. And in some ways, those are useful sayings, because where God has told us to do something, we're not to sit back and do nothing and expect him to wave a magic wand and to to sort everything out for us. But the Bible's teaching is richer and deeper than that. The Bible's teaching is that God helps those who can't help themselves. Not won't, but can't. And this chapter warns us of the danger of seeking to, to rush God's timetable. Because when God has given a command, then we're to obey it. No delays. But when God gives a promise of what he will do, we need to accept it and accept it on his terms and accept it on his timing. And that can be really hard. It can be really hard, that waiting process. And there can be times when we can feel that we should take matters into our own hands and and hurry God along a bit. If that's the case, we need to listen to the lesson of this chapter. Or there are other times that we can feel particularly forgotten about whilst we wait and whilst we seek to wait patiently. And we need to listen to the lesson of this chapter here too. This chapter is a new phase, marks a new phase in the story of Abram. We've been looking at the story of Abram and the first part The very beginning, we saw Abram being called away from what's now modern-day Iraq, uh, away over to to what's now modern-day Israel, and to live for God there. And God gave him promises, promises of land, promises of descendants, and promises of blessing. And the first few chapters, chapters 11 to 15, have really been about the land. And is Abram going to stay in God's land? Is Abram going to trust God? To give him the land, that's been tested. And Abraham has both fallen and stood firm. He's done both. And now we move to the second part of the story that concerns the second part of the promise, that of descendants. Three times already God has promised descendants. But there's been no sign. Now, whatever about land... Surely children are far closer to us. And this is a far more personal pain. This is an excruciating delay. And in fact, it's going to last right through to chapter 22. And in these chapters, we see the struggle of faith amidst desires and dreams and heartache and delay. The chapter divides into two main parts and then a little conclusion. Uh, Verses 1 to 6, the main players are Sarai, Abram and Hagar. And in the second part, the main players are God and Hagar. So the first thing that we see comes from the first part and I was going to call it our faithless impatience. Our faithless impatience. And then I thought, well, no, that's not quite true. That's not fair to Sarai. So I changed it to our flawed faith. 
because she has faith, but it's flawed. And that, that brings us to the first thing that we want to see in this point, because it would be really easy to be hard on Sarai. What a stupid woman saying to her husband, here, take the maid and have children with her. What on earth was she thinking? It would be, we, we, could, we could just say, you know, really? And then we would, we would say, well, I'd never do anything like that. But below this, below this strange action, I think there's genuine faith. You see, God had promised a child. Genesis 12, 7, to your offspring, I will give this land. And years passed, and in Genesis 15, God says to Abram, who's thinking, well, maybe it's not me. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's, it's this man here will be my heir. And God says, no, that man who's a servant, he will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And now 10 years have passed since Genesis chapter 12. Since the promise was first given, he's 10 years older. His wife Sarah is 10 years older. And you can imagine the confusion and the, the pain. Well, God had said then month after month passes. And each time Abram and Sarai look at each other and say, not this time, pet. Not this time. How many tears were there? And how many questions? Why? But, but you said, God, 120 months of disappointment. And yet Sarai clings to the promise. She believes that God had said that her husband would have a son. She believes it. The problem isn't a lack of faith. The problem's a wrong-headed faith, but it's certainly not a lack of faith. If there had been no faith, then the problem wouldn't have happened. They wouldn't have gone into this mess if Sarai hadn't been hanging on to the fact that God had promised and I wonder if in Genesis 15, when the promise was renewed, that that has set her thinking again. Do we read bitterness into, uh, into verse 2? The Lord has kept me from having children. It depends where we put the emphasis. The Lord has kept me from having children. Or the Lord has kept me from having children. It's hard to know where the emphasis is, but I don't know that we should do her the dishonor of reading bitterness in here. Maybe it's just a statement of fact. He's kept me. And then it's as if she thinks, you know, God didn't say I would have a child. He said that my husband would have a son of his own flesh and blood. Maybe it's not through me. And so she makes this suggestion. We'll come to the suggestion in a moment. But I want us to see that the pain comes partly because they take the promise seriously. And she's not wrong to take God's promise seriously. Her solution is wrong, but her faith is right. And sometimes believing God leads us into hurt and pain and disappointment. We pray for something to happen, uh, some loved one to come to Christ, and nothing seems to happen. And, and if we didn't care, we wouldn't be bothered. We, we, we pray maybe for our children to come to faith. And it seems to be taking a long time. And we say, but God, you said you would be a God to us and to our children after us. You promised. And because we take the promise seriously, 
we begin to, well, we either begin to not believe the promise and we become hard to it, or we become burdened. It's hard to keep on trusting. God has said he'll build his church. And yet, our numbers aren't mushrooming. We've got to keep believing it and keep believing it. Hanging on to his promise. And that's what we've got to do. But what we're not to do is to come up with a wrong solution. That's the second thing we see here. Sarai takes a wrong turn. But even then we need to be careful. Because what Sarai did, although it seems completely barking mad to us, was legally and culturally acceptable in her time. Not biblically acceptable, but culturally acceptable and legally acceptable. When she says, go sleep with my slave or my maid, uh, perhaps I can build a family through her. And she took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. That was something that the culture allowed for. Not God's culture, not God's word, but the wider culture. We've got archaeological evidence. We've got marriage contracts. Uh, and Because they didn't write them on paper, they wrote them in stone. Um, we have them. And uh, there's one from uh, Assyria around this time, uh, 1900 years before Christ, uh, the time of Abram over in Assyria, uh, where Abram was from. And uh, the, the contract uh, reads effectively that if the wife did not produce children for her husband within two years, she herself could buy a slave woman. And after that slave woman had given birth to a child, the husband could sell her off uh, wherever he wished. And we, we've got several of these contracts. This was something that wasn't out of the blue. It wasn't a crazy scheme. I can't imagine it was easy for Sarai. But perhaps she thought it was the only way. But she was wrong. She was wrong. And Moses, as he writes this chapter of Genesis, draws our attention to it in, in different ways. There's someone who is essentially absent from verses 1 to 6. God is only spoken about. He's not spoken to. His advice is not sought. In a decision this momentous, they don't say, well, hold on, let's ask God. You remember this happened before in chapter 12, where we've got a section where God is mentioned a lot, and then uh, Abram clears off down to Egypt and gets into trouble there. And we noticed that when we read that section, God wasn't mentioned at all. And here's a a flaw in Abram. Whenever it comes to to major decisions, he sometimes forgets, not all the time, but sometimes forgets to ask God what he should do. And he just follows the pattern of the world around him. He, he, He goes by what's okay with everybody else. There's a problem. We see it actually in another way that Moses underlining there's a problem here, not just the, the, the failure to seek God's guidance, but also Abram is in the back seat here all the time. Sarah is doing the driving. And yet Abram should be leading in his household. That's the role that God had given to him. He's failing to lead in his home. He's failing to lead his wife to God in prayer. And verse 6, there's that final shameful, abdication of responsibility. Your servant is in your hands. You do what you like with her. And then there's another indicator that something's wrong. 
his wife, listen to the words, and think, where have we heard anything like this before? His wife took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband. His wife took and gave to her husband. You've heard those words before. There's an echo there, isn't there? Don't, don't, Don't they echo? She took from its fruit and ate and gave to her husband who was with her. And he ate. It's an echo of Genesis 3. Moses, in, his, in a clever way, highlights this connection. He says that we've got the same thing again. This is wrong. This is wrong. Biblically wrong and spiritually wrong. It's not how God's people should decide and act. Do you ever think God needs a hand? There's a fine line between doing what God wants us to do and us taking things into our own hands. We know God has said he'll provide. Uh, And maybe in business we know that, well, this, this is not actually legally wrong and everybody else is doing it. We know actually that it's morally wrong because sometimes the law doesn't match up with what's morally right and wrong. Uh, And we say, well, we'll do this. And there's a loophole here and we'll, we'll, we'll go that way. And then, then I'll have more and God will have provided. And I could be a little bit better off. No, no. Some of David's men, remember, thought that God needed a hand when Saul uh, had fallen, had come into the, the cave. Or another time when Saul had fallen asleep near them. And they were going, they said, to, look, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Go, go and take his life. They said, no, 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 no. No, God doesn't need a hand here. God will do it his way in his time, David said. Peter in the garden, when Jesus was being arrested, thought Jesus needed a hand, so he pulled out his sword and swung at the servant of the high priest and took off his ear, thankfully. Um, Only his ear. Um, He thought Jesus needed a hand. He couldn't wait on God's plan, on God's timing. And here's the challenge for us here. This chapter is about, will faith wait? Will faith trust God in difficult circumstances? And there's all sorts of ways that might apply to us. It might be in our desire to see someone believe the gospel. And we exaggerate something or we push an answer to a question that they've got that we're not sure about, but we push an answer on them that, that, as if we know all the answers. Far better to say, I'm sorry, I don't know. Or it might be that there's a time when we're really struggling and we we know that God has promised that he will not let us be tested beyond what we can bear. But we we feel we can't bear it any longer and we, we don't wait his time and we come up with our solution to it. Or it might be the temptation to lie so that good may come out of it. It may be that we think we've got a good idea for something and we don't stop to take time to ask God's advice, to talk to God's people about it or to see what God's word has to say and we push our plans through without consultation. Or it may be that something providentially comes up. It suggests itself to us and we think, well, why not? 
It might be the right thing, but it might not be. And we can't set God's providences against the revealed Word of God and say, well, this has happened. And, well, we'll just ignore what God says. No, 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 God's Word must rule. And Abram says, no, 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 my wife has suggested this. I'll go with it. And we see the damaging consequences. Oh, everyone's affected. Everyone's affected. And here's the brutal honesty of Scripture. Sometimes people say the Bible's made up. Now, really, particularly young people, really, if you were making up a story and you've got your great hero, the one who's going to be the father of the faithful, would you put in a story as grotty and shoddy as this? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't record this unsavory incident. And no defense of it is offered. We're just left looking at the inconsistency of God's people. It's almost proof of the truth of Scripture. You wouldn't put that in unless it actually happened. Hagar becomes pregnant and proud. She despises her mistress. She struts around. Look at me. Look at my my blossoming stomach. Sarai becomes jealous and bitter. And there's discord between her and her husband. She blames Abram. Abram shrugs his shoulders and evades responsibility. There's injustice as Sarai mistreats Hagar so much so that Hagar flees. And we might think this is just ancient history, but it's not. The whole Arab-Israeli conflict gets traced back to this. The incident three weeks ago in Tower Bridge in London comes back to this. There are serious consequences that can ripple down through millennia our sin. What a sorry mess. All because God's people didn't wait patiently on God or seek his guidance. So here's a warning to us. How do we live when God's testing our faith? We don't live like this. We don't lose patience with God's timing. We don't follow through our own muddled ideas. We wait for God. And that brings us to the second thing that we see. We see God's faithful attention. Our flawed faith contrasts with God's faithful attention. And this is lovely. This is lovely. With this messed up backdrop, what would you expect God to do? Would you expect God just to dust his hands of Abram and walk away and say, look, I've had enough. This isn't the first time you've fouled up. Or maybe... He is the moral monster that atheists make him out to be. Maybe he'll have the woman executed. Or stoned to death. Or banished. Maybe he'll remove his promise to Abram and Sarah. But that's not what we see. We see three things. We see a God who seeks sinners. A God who seeks sinners. Hagar has had enough. She flees south. Uh, to the road, she's on the road home, going back to Egypt. Now that would have been tidy, wouldn't it? That would have been so straightforward. There she is, away to Egypt, out of the story, out of Abram and Sarai's life, no more trouble, nothing, just go back to your own people, that would have been tidy. But God's not interested in tidy solutions. He's interested in people. And in this extraordinary moment, 
The angel of the Lord, we're told uh, in, in verse 7, found Hagar. You get the impression that the angel of the Lord is out looking, searching. Have you seen Hagar? Does anyone know where Hagar is? Who is this angel of the Lord? Well, this is the first time that his appearance is recorded. The word angel simply means messenger, so it could be a messenger from God. But often this figure appears and is treated not merely as an angel, but he's treated the way you would treat God. You know, whenever an angel appears and, and people would bow down to worship, uh, you know, in Revelation 22, the angel says to John, Don't do that. Don't. I'm a fellow servant of yours. Don't do that. I'm an angel. But the angel of the Lord, he accepts worship and is acknowledged as God even in this passage. Verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is God who's appeared. And in particular, there is one member of the Trinity who, who appears in human form. It's God the Son. And these appearances of the angel of the Lord are appearances of God the Son before his coming in, as, a, as a child at Bethlehem. And here's God, unasked, unsought, seeing and seeking out this proud Egyptian maid. Wonderful. Here's a God who comes looking. It's, it's like a preview of God the Son coming for us. Here he says, I'll, I'll give you a glimpse of what I do. And look at who he comes for here. It's a foreigner. It's a slave. It's a foreign female slave, which in the ancient world was a nobody. And you can hear her amazement. You are the God who sees me. You see me. And there are two firsts here. It's the first recorded appearance of the, the angel of the Lord. And he's appearing to this outcast, this marginalized person. And it's the first time and only time in any ancient Near Eastern literature where God address, where, where a God, any God that's ever believed in, addresses a woman by name. It's the God of the Bible. The only time it happens. And it's this foreigner and slave who gets the honor. Does this not show us something wonderful about this God? He's the God who seeks out the lost sheep that people have written off. That's why we read from Luke uh, chapter 15. Because it's not a one-off. It's what he's like, Jesus is saying in Luke 15. He hears and he appears and he seeks out the lost sheep. He looks even for those who are wronged by his people. He's the God who sees and the God who cares. We could say in some ways that Hagar is incidental to the storyline. But she's not incidental to God. She's a wronged and used woman who herself has responded wrongly. But God sees her. And God takes time to appear to her, to care for her. 
And that's the God that we have. You, you may have been hurt by life and feel as if God has lost sight of you. And this passage comes to you this morning and you're reminded that if you're one of God's people, God sees. Even if you're not one of God's people, God sees you. You are not insignificant. You may feel insignificant in the world's eyes, but God sees. You might feel insignificant in your own eyes, but God sees you. Hagar says, you, God, see me. You see me. Me. You might even have been hurt or wronged by God's people. And this God says, I see you. Here's a God who sees you, who would address you by name. How wonderfully personal. You're not a nameless face to him. No matter who you are. And then we see that this is a God who demands obedience. Who demands obedience. Hagar answers God's question. Uh, You know, what are you doing? Well, I'm running away. And God's answer is interesting. He says, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. Oh, that's a hard ask. That's a hard thing, isn't it? Go back to the possibility of being ill-treated. God doesn't say, well, I understand you're in a tough situation and it's okay with me if you want to skip out on it. I'll not tell anyone. God says, go back, go back. He's going to back it up with promises, yes. But he asks her to go back and to live for him in hard and demanding circumstances. This is a God who is to be obeyed. He does seek us out. But he doesn't just forgive us and say, oh, go on your own way. He calls us to follow him. And there may be times in our lives when living for God means doing so in hard and demanding circumstances. This may not be the life that you wanted. But God says, live for me there. You know, I had a, an, I'm old. I had a record, an LP of Bible stories. Children can look it up on Wikipedia or something if you want to know what a record is. <laughs> I would put it on on a, on a, on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, this man narrated Bible stories, and I still can hear his voice. It was funny preaching on this a couple of weeks ago. My brother Joel was out, and as I, had, as I said what I've just said about go and live for me there, apparently the same thought occurred to him as did to me. The bit in the story of Jonah where uh, the narrator has God saying to Jonah, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach for me there. He didn't want to do it. God says to him, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach for me there. And here we are. Circumstances that we'd rather run away from, perhaps. Hard, demanding circumstances. God says, that's where I want you to live for me. Live for me there. I'll provide. And there will come a time when God will permit Hagar to leave. But this isn't it. She is to live for God there with Abram and Sarai. And it's for her own good. If she went to Egypt, she'd lose you know, her connection with God's people and the people that God was working amongst. In human terms, it would have been the end of her knowledge of God. 
Maybe that God is calling you to live in hard and demanding circumstances. Maybe at home. Maybe with family. Maybe with health. Maybe with work. Maybe at school. And it would be easy to, to, to want to, to walk away from them or to duck. And God says, no, live for me there. I see you. I see you. I care for you. Now live for me there. And then, if we will trust God's ways and trust God's time, we find that God is a God who promises blessing. He promises blessing. God never sends his people where he will not provide. When God commands us to do something, we can be certain that his blessing will follow us. And there's loads of promises crammed in here. Our time's going. We can't have time to look at all of them. But verse 10, verse 10, look at it. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that will become too numerous to count. That's a very similar promise to the one given to Abram. Generosity from God. Verse 11, the promise of a safe birth. The promise of a son. She didn't know she was going to have a boy or a girl, but God knows. So he goes, I'm going to tell you, you'll have a son. And it's as if this son, I, I love it. His, God says his name is to be Ishmael. Now Ishmael means God hears. It's as if this boy is to be a living, breathing, walking promise reminder to Hagar. She has named God. God, you're the God who sees me. And God says, I want you to remember too that I'm the God who hears you. I'm the God who hears you. I see you and I hear you. And every time Hagar calls out, Ishmael, Ishmael, what's she reminding herself? God hears, God hears. Whenever she's had a bad day and maybe Sarah's had a go at her and she takes her little son in her arms and says, Oh, Ishmael, Ishmael. What's she saying? God hears. God hears. How wonderfully kind of this God to provide in such a way, to re- provide a reminder that I hear and I care. And last week in church we had one of those clear reminders with the Lord's Supper. God reminding us that He hears and He cares. And this morning, perhaps you are being reminded by God, I see and I hear you. And even the very statement, He explains why He's to be called Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. It implies that God will continue to hear and that God will provide. God is just a call away for Hagar, the Egyptian, the the female slave. She has the hotline to God because God's people have that. And then there's a promise about her son. Will this little boy be a dog's body in Abram's household, picked on and kicked about, a gopher to run and messages. No, he'll be no gopher. He'll be a wild donkey of a man. Now that's not an Ulsterism. That's not a, an Irish, a wild donkey, that fella. Hey. No, he will be a wild donkey. He will be untamable. He will not be biddable by Abram and by others. He will not be pushed around. He will not be told what to do. As one writer says, it celebrates 
the untamed power of the Ishmaelites. He's not going to be a dog's body, her son. She maybe feared that. What sort of a life will he have growing up in Abram's household? He'll be trampled on and trodden. God says, no, 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 he won't. I promise you. Here's the God who calls people to live for him, even in hard circumstances. But where he commands, he provides, he promises, he sees, he hears, he gives. Is he calling you to live for him in hard circumstances? Family trials, health trials, difficulties in the life that God has given you to live. You think, I wouldn't have picked this life. I wish I was different. Maybe under pressure to keep your faith to yourself. Be assured that God sees, God hears, and God will provide. It may be that you're considering starting the Christian life and you can see hard things. You can see the implications of what people will think, what family will think. And God commands you to turn to Him and to follow Him and to live for Him. Yes, He commands it. But He promises that He sees, He hears, He provides. Now let me finish briefly with our faith-filled response. Because what we see in this passage from Hagar, of all people, you know, the great, this is the great hero of the faith. And you can imagine a little Israelite boy, his daddy reading to him the story of their great heroic forefather Abram. And we're to be like Abram, we're to believe like Abram. But who are we to be like in this passage? It's not like Abram, it's like Hagar. She's the one who realizes she's the one who trusts. She's the one who obeys. And you hear her realization in verse 13. You are the God who sees me. She realizes it. She marvels at it. Perhaps that's what you need to do this morning. You need to realize and to marvel that this God sees you. He sees you. You Do you marvel at that? Do you marvel that the God who made the billions of galaxies cares about a little person who lives in a tiny island on the third rock from a small star in one galaxy? Do you marvel at that? Do you marvel that God hears you in your trouble? He cares. Do you need to realize that afresh this morning? And do you need to trust and obey? Hagar returns. That's an act of trust and obedience. We see that God can be trusted. Because at this stage, Abram isn't aware that Ishmael isn't the promised seed promised the Senate and God doesn't even clarify that and so Abram puts all his care into bringing up Ishmael as if Ishmael is the promised descendant it's not till later that God says no it's not Ishmael but God in his tenderness has ensured that this boy is well treated and well cared for he can be trusted this God even amidst hard circumstances will we keep trusting and will we keep living for him wholeheartedly, not trying to wangle things our way and make following God easier. 
Will we trust and obey? Maybe you haven't yet started the Christian life. Well, this is how you start the Christian life. You don't start it by some sort of self-salvation effort. That's what Hagar, or that's what Abram and Sarai were doing. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get God's plan and God's promise, but we'll, we'll sort of get it our way with our own efforts. No, 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 no. There to continue to wait for God, to provide salvation the way he promised. And if you haven't yet started the Christian life, you need to go to God and say, I can't do it. I need you to do it for me. I need you to give me new life. I need you to make me new again, to forgive me and to cleanse me. You need to trust him for that. And those who have put their trust in him, we need to continue trusting, to trust his ways and his time and to live for him where he has placed us because this God sees, this God hears and this God speaks his promises to his people if we'll wait for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for this beautiful portrait of you. We see an ugly portrait of of Abram and Sarai and even Hagar. We see something beautiful in Hagar as she trusts you. But we see beauty in abundance as we look at you and your tender care for somebody that the world would have written off. But they matter to you. And we thank you for that. And we pray that you would help us to realize that you see, you hear, and you speak. And help us to trust and obey as we live for you in the circumstances in which you have placed us. Give us patience, O Lord God, even as days and years pass, to wait for your timing and to trust your provision. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.